0: If you have a Bible, you can open up to Judges chapter 16, Judges chapter 16. We are looking at the last chapter on Samson, so uh, we will be in Judges chapter 16 today. Finishing up the 12th and final judge, if you have a Bible and you're able to stand, uh Stand with me. We're not going to read the entire chapter, but we're going to start at verse 23. We're going to study the entire chapter, but I'm just going to start at verse 23 and read for time purposes. Uh, So let's stand and read the very end of chapter 16 together, starting at verse 23. After I read it, I'll say, "This is the word of the Lord," and you'll respond by saying, "Thanks be to God." Of course, you're thanking the Lord that He would give us the Scripture, as well as the things that the Lord teaches you this morning. You want to say yes to and you want to obey, and so saying "Thanks be to God" is a way for you to. Say that you want to obey those things. Starting at verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and, rejoice, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they, called, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson grasped the two pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the his right hand on the one, and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, "Let me die with the Philistines." Then he bowed, and with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and all those who were in it. So, the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed in his life. Then the brothers and his families came down and took him and brought him and buried him between Zorah and Eshtoel in the tomb of Manoah and his father. He had judged Israel twenty years. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat, please. Starting at verse chapter 16, verse 1, but first let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we pray for your spirit to come this morning and teach us through the life of Samson how, uh, how desperate we are to be able to, or to need to be able to walk with you daily. I pray that you would teach us and show us just how important it is for us to every day uh, walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul starts uh, the second half of the book of Ephesians after he had covered doctrine in chapters 1 through 3. In chapter 4, verse 1, it's really kind of the practical part of Ephesians where he starts talking about, now that you know the doctrine, this is what it looks like. So the very first verse in chapter 4, verse 1 says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This word walk can also be translated live. So he's not just talking about, uh, you know, a day or, or something like that. He's talking about your entire life. And he's looking at your entire life as something that you need to think of as a step by step by step by step by step until you reach the end. And so he tells us, since after Christ, after you come to know Christ, you're walking through this entire time where through your life, you are step by step by step, intentionally making sure that every step is with Jesus. He says to make sure that you do it in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so uh, this is after you've heard the gospel, and this doesn't replace gospel. You don't Um, You don't start living by the law after you've been saved by the gospel. You still continue to live by the gospel. But nevertheless, as a gospel person, as someone who has been saved by Jesus, there are specific things that are told to us in the way that we're supposed to walk. And here he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So you want to live your life in such a way based on the fact that since Christ has called you that you live a worthy life for him and uh, what we know is, if you've been a Christian for any time, that's difficult. It's quite difficult. Um, so the the title of the sermon today is Maintaining a Worthy Walk with God. You can just leave the graphic up. I don't have, I don't have uh, notes today. I, I have, uh, just, just want you to listen. So the title, though, is Maintaining a Worthy Walk with God. And in this chapter, Samson provides for us, several ways how to to walk with God, how to live a life that's worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Unfortunately, they're not because he makes good decisions. Instead, we learn these things by seeing his poor decisions. We see his his terrible decisions, and so uh, we learn how to walk with God based on what he does not do. Um, So uh, if we're honest, coming to Christ and walking with Christ, they're two different things. And sometimes coming to Christ... Admitting that we're sinners, repenting of our sin, trusting in Jesus seems to be, in some manner, seemingly easier than walking with Christ. Coming to Christ is in a moment; we 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 all of a sudden become realizing that we we should be totally humble. We trust in Christ. We become a believer. That's in a moment. Walking with Jesus is our entire lifetime, and it can be quite difficult. Why is it difficult? Paul describes it this way in Romans seven: "For I don't understand my own actions." for I do not do what I want but the very thing I do I hate this is why walking with Christ is hard because all the things that we want to do we don't and all the things we don't want to do we end up doing he says now if I do now if I do what I do not want I agree with the law that is good so now it is no longer I but <clears throat> who do it but sin that dwells in me for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for I have the desire to do what's right but I don't have the ability to carry it out, for I do not do what I, the good that I want, but the evil. I do not do what I, uh, what I keep on. Why do I keep on doing what I'm doing? Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That's why it's difficult, is because there's good things that we want to do as a believer, and we rarely end up doing them. majority of the time we do the bad stuff, and there's bad stuff we hate, and we just want to stop doing that, but we keep doing it. That's our experience, and so walking with God can be difficult. Now, again, I want to make sure we understand walking with God isn't law. It's not you come to Christ, you trust in the gospel, and then you revert over to law keeping. It's it's continually believing in the gospel. But nevertheless, in this text we can see some, some things that we can learn when it comes to walking with God and what it means. And so if Paul, the apostle Paul, says things like that in Romans 7, then we certainly can be at least comforted in some manner Uh, Knowing that walking with Jesus can be difficult. And this means that what I want to do this morning is from Judges 16, draw out the pieces of wisdom of what it looks like to walk with God. Verse 1, Samson went to Gaza. Stop right there. We already got a problem. We already got our first principle. Samson went to Gaza. You're like, how's that possible? Well, it is. Here's why. (laughs) Because Gaza is not just Philistine land. Gaza is the middle of Philistine land. It's all up inside of the Philistine land. We know in the previous verse, chapter 15, 20, he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. So he had been doing that for 20 years. Chapter 16, the very end of his life, he has been presumably God's man to save Israel for 20 years now. One would hope that his relationship would seemingly grow during that, and that's what would happen. Likely not 20 years later, of judging Israel, he walks right up into the middle of Philistine land looking for a prostitute. First principle is this Christians, when we're walking with God, living in a life worthy of the calling, should not intentionally, should not intentionally walk into the middle of temptation. We should flee, we should flee from temptation. It's just crucial. Look what he does. Samson went to Gaza. There he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The, number two, the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the city, city, gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, and we'll kill him. But Samson lay there till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city in two posts. This requires great strength. And pulled them up. Bar and all, and he put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron, some 40 miles away. So he he knows they're going to get him. He picks up the things and he just walks or goes 40 miles and throws them down. I mean, that's amazing strength. But nevertheless, what we see here is Samson walking right into the middle of temptation. Right into the middle of temptation as believers in Christ who are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord we must not do this. We should not ever intentionally walk. And I say intentionally because certainly it can be unbeknownst to us. But mostly, most times it's not. And so we want to intentionally run away from temptation. Why does he do this? Why does he, after 20 years of being the judge, seemingly should be walking with God in a much better way than what he had done? Why does he do this? Well, at the end of chapter 15, he's praying. He's praying. He's seemingly starting some kind of walk with God and glaringly absent from all of chapter 16, unlike chapter 14 and 15, is the phrase, the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. The Spirit of the Lord, etc. So likely why he does this is he does not continue, not mentioned once in all of chapter 16 at the close of this tragic man's life is a mention of the Holy Spirit being on him. So likely is because there is no continually living by the Spirit. If the first thing we see is that Christians should not intentionally walk into the into temptation, conversely, number two, we see Christians must also depend upon the promised Holy Spirit every day. That's the first two that we can see when we're talking about living a life worthy of the calling, or um, as I said, maintaining a worthy walk with God. Christians should not intentionally walk into the middle of temptation. Number two, Christians must depend upon the Holy Spirit every day. Christians must be aware of what going into Gaza is for them. Every one of you has a going into Gaza. Like there's a a place of temptation that you should flee from. You should not walk into Gaza. We all need to know what tempts us. and We all need to stay away from the middle of Gaza. Whatever it is for you. We all know what our Gaza is. Stay away from it. One can say this, Fudd, that is so legalistic. What about freedom? We're free now. D.A. Carson says it this way in his commentary to the letter of Philippians. We should exercise the kind of faith that cheerfully makes self-denying decisions simply because following Christ demands it, simply because it's right. So I don't think it's legalism. I don't think it's legalism. I think D.A. Carson's right on we should flee. And not only is it not only legalism, I don't think, uh, it's commanded to flee temptation. It says it several times in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 6.18, 6, flee from sexual immorality. 1, 1 Timothy 6, 10, and 11, flee from, it says these things, if you look in context, it's all kinds of evils. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful p- passions and pursue righteousness. So fleeing is not legalism. Fleeing is obeying. Fleeing is obeying. So, What we've seen thus far is this. Um, Christians should not intentionally walk into temptation. Christians must depend every day upon the promised Holy Spirit in their life. When we don't, we have consequences that come around us for not heeding this wisdom like for him, where they're surrounding the place, they're wanting to bring harm to him, uh, they're bringing detrimental consequences to him and likely even more sin is what we see in verses two and three. And he's living in darkness and he's running away in darkness at midnight trying to retreat from the the harm that could come to him. Those are the things that happened. The the story of him running away at midnight is certainly emblematic of what it means to live in darkness. And so the first two things we see are don't run into temptation, instead run away from it. Second, live by the spirit. He's glaringly not. Verse four, after this, again, we can stop there and have another one. After this, what are you doing, Samson? Samson? What are you doing? After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Deliah. This means that Samson still has learned nothing about himself. He demands in chapter 14 a, uh, a bride that's a Philistine. He walks into Gaza in the beginning of chapter 16 and sleeps with a prostitute. And still, after this, he wants to marry another Philistine or he wants to uh, have a girlfriend, <laughs> at least. Uh, Another Philistine. This means that Samson still has learned nothing about himself. He he has no clue about what it means to do the painful work of self-diagnosis of his own sin. So walking in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been given. Number three, Christians continually must do the painful, and I say painful because it is, painful work of self-diagnosis, parentheses, other people can help, other people should help. Christians must do the Painful work of self-diagnosis, of knowing what sins cling so closely or so easily entangle, as Hebrews 12, 1 says, us. Know who you are. Know what things cause you to be tempted in sin so that you don't walk into ga- Gaza. Samson here is not able to do that. He has no ability insight of the fact that he has a massive sexual addiction problem. He doesn't know his sin, and therefore, since he doesn't know his, fin- his sin, he doesn't know how to fight his sin. Chapter fourteen begins, showing us this problem where he demands this unnamed bride, uh, whom he eventually gets killed. So he's not a great husband. Um, chapter sixteen starts off with uh, hooking up with a prostitute, and then he's continuing in this same sexual addiction here. And it's going to, in this time where chapter fourteen he failed the test, chapter sixteen, uh, chapter fourteen he just barely passed. He stayed alive, at least. He didn't necessarily pass the test. Chapter 16 is going to kill him. It's going to destroy him. And so, Christians, when we're unwilling to know our sin, when we're not willing to fight against our sin, then these things will happen. We have to do the painful work of self-diagnosis, which Samson is just completely unable to do. Now, there's good news about knowing what your sin is. Here's the good news. Jesus has defeated it at the cross Jesus has defeated it. So when we say diagnose it, know what it is, it isn't like, oh, there it is, unconquerable. That's not true. By the power of the Spirit, it absolutely can be conquered. The task of killing sin is not one of sure defeat. The task of killing sin is one of sure victory because of Jesus, because of Jesus' death on the cross. So it's so important to remember that when you do the difficult work of self-diagnosis, knowing what sin so easily entangles you, You can also remind yourself of the promise that Jesus has killed the sin, Jesus has died for this sin, therefore you can as well. Samson had the ability to overcome horrific sin in his life, but he did not live by the Spirit. He had no clue what was uh, really entangling him, and he lived by the moment. He lived for himself and his glory in the moment. He didn't live for Jesus and his glory and for eternity. Samson was no doubt... No doubt, a tragic, tragic person in the Judges. Now, when you get to verse seven, after, it says, After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sork, whose name was Deliah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said, Seduce Samson and see where his great strength lies. That, to me, that just means it's so obvious to everybody, except for Samson, what his sin was. That's how naive he was. That they could come up and say, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies so we can overpower him and we can bind him and humble him. We don't like how, how he can kill the, us, so do it for us. We will repay you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound so that no one can subdue you. When we get to verse 7 through 17, this is the back and forth between Delilah and Samson. I'm going to go through this. Um, The next point that I want to make is at the end of it. So if you're not familiar with the story, um, this is the back and forth where Samson keeps lying to her, not telling her you know, how his strength comes. Verse seven, Samson said to her, If they buy me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I shall become weak and like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him, bound him with them. And now she, uh, when he was asleep, now she had men lying in ambush uh, in the inner chamber, and he said, And she's like, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings like there was nothing, like it touches fire, so the secrets of his strength was not known. So they come in, he busts it open, and he's, he's like, What's going on? That didn't work, basically. And Deliah said to him, Behold, you've mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said, Well, if you bind me with new ropes. uh, The new ropes, by the way, are the same things that they tried uh, over in chapter 15. Didn't work. Uh, And it says, That have not been used, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Deliah took new ropes and bound him and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson, and the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off like a thread. Again, you know, no big deal. Verse 13. Then Delilah said to Samson, "Until you, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound." And he said to her, "If you weave the seven locks of my head." Now he's getting closer to the answer. He starts talking about his hair and his head, moving away from tying up his wrists. If you weave the seven locks of my head and uh, and fasten it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak like any other man. And while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin. And said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke, he pulled the pen and the loom and the web. And so basically, none of these worked. Verse 15. And, he's, uh, and then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times. And you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him with, hard with her words, day after day, and, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. Verse 17. And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, "A razor." Has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak like any other man. So at verse 17 is when he finally, after those other three times, is when he finally tells her, This is what's going on. And this is where we get um, to where I think is the, the craziest part of the interactions between them. So in verse 18 it says, When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, She sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up again for he's told me all of his heart. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. So this, till we get to this point, he's just been kind of messing around, right? He's just been playing a game. But at this particular point here is where I find it the most troubling because every time he lied to her, he laid his head down, he knew that whatever she did, it's not gonna work. It's not gonna work. These little things aren't going to do this little thing. But after he actually tells her the truth, like what it's going to happen, why does he lay his head down again? Like that's the most troubling part for me. The other times it's like I know I can get free, but after you actually tell her what can happen and she's tried the other three things, you know she's going to try this. Why do you lay down beside her? You know she's going to do it. That's the most troubling part for me. Verse... um, 19, when Delilah saw that, verse 19, she made him sleep on her knees. She made him sleep on her knees. The three other times he can go to bed peacefully because he knew he wasn't going to leave his strength. What is wrong with him here? He knew that he could leave his strength. Why does he still do this? And I think that it has a lot to do with his belief about himself and his belief about God. Tim Keller, Hits the nail right on the head because he did not really believe that his hair or his Nazarite vow was the source of his strength. He had come to believe that his strength was simply his, that it was him, not God. He had no belief in God. He says no matter what he did or how he lived, he would not lose it. His self decept- deception was not just psychological, it was theological. He didn't believe that God was doing it. He thought it was him. Samson was unable to see how dependent he was upon God's grace. He had come to see his strength not as an, uh, he had come to see his strength as an an inalienable right, not a gift of God's mercy. So how do we know this? How do we know that Tim Keller is on. How do we know that, Fudd, that you think that's the thing? In verse 19, where he says, he, he just lays down. Why do we think that that's what he's thinking? Because in verse 20, after it's all going down, the Philistines are upon you, and he said, and he said, I will go out as the other times. So he thought, even though you know what it is, all the other times I busted, busted loose, I can do it again. And so all of his uh, hope All of his focus was on himself. His strength was a gift to him and he didn't view it that way. He viewed it as something that he could just do himself. So number four regarding walking with Christ is Christians must remember all of our strength and all of our giftings come from Jesus, not ourselves. Everything that we do, our gifts are not given to us that we can toy around and play with as we please. Instead, they're given to us so that we can serve and care for other people. Uh, God's people specific and the rest of the world after that. And so whenever uh, we're given these gifts, we should never ever become so used to them to think that we just have them and that they're ours and they're not a gift from God. Jesus says it plainly in John fifteen five. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Self-reliant man at Remedy Church who can get everything done on his own. Apart from Jesus... You can do nothing. Intelligent, competent, young woman, older woman who can think that you don't need Christ to accomplish anything. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Nothing. You are not able to do anything. Your job that you do, that you get paid, you can't do that without Jesus. Your children that you're raising, that you can feed, that you think you can take care of, you can't do that without Jesus. You are not accomplishing one thing in this entire world without Jesus. And that's what Samson had come to believe, that he actually could do it himself. Christians, we must remember that all of our strength and all of our gifts come from Jesus, not us. And that's why he lays his head down on her lap because he really believed that he was doing it himself. And keeping us weak, not strong, is God's daily app notification reminder to us to remember, remain in me, Remain in me. That's the whole point of John 15, where it says apart from me, you can do nothing. If you read it, depending on your NIV or ESV or KJV or whatever V, it says it abide, says abide, 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 or remain, 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 remain. remain. That's, the, that's the point is you stick to Jesus. You stay with Jesus because apart from him, you can do absolutely nothing. And reminding us of our weakness is not God being mean. Instead, it's his daily notification reminder to say, it's the only way you're gonna stay strong is staying close to me. You're weak without me. That's why Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 12. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I wanna be weak, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, and hardships, and persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's right, you know it, that's right. That means this, and this is just not the way we think. In God's economy, being weak is being strong. And being strong is being weak. In God's economy, being weak is actually being strong. And being strong is ultimately being weak. And so here, Samson had all of his hope in himself and had no clue that it was about God. And so what does he do in verse 19? He falls asleep on her knees. And she called, and the men came, and they shaved off the hair of his head, and she began to torment him. And his strength left, left him, in verse 20, and the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke, and he said, I will go out as all my other times and shake myself free. But he didn't know, right here, he did not know that the Lord had left him. He didn't know. The third vow of the Nazarite vow had been broken. He had already touched dead things. He had already, oh, I can't remember the second one. And here, uh, here he has his head shaved. So in Numbers Chapter six of the three Nazarite vows. There's another one. Oh, drank He drank alcohol, um, and so he had already broke all three of them. Now by shaving his head, and so the strength of God had left him, and he didn't know. In verse twenty-one, the Philistine seized, seized him, gouged out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza, and bound him with bronze shackles. And look what he does. Here's what they do with him. And he ground at the mill in the prison, and he ground. And you're like, what does that mean? I don't. I don't have to do that. What does that mean? <laughs> Well, good thing we have these commenta- commenters that tell us: "Ground the mill at the prison." This is massive irony. For the first time in the book of judges, the first time the, the 12th judge, a judge has actually been defeated. No other judge had been defeated. Samson did it to himself. No doubt, a judge has been defeated, and here he's grinding the mill in the prison. Oh, the irony. When Commentator says, as Samson saga reaches its final pinnacle, the ironies of life come to full fruition. Overnight, this man is transformed from one whose life is governed by sight and whose actions are determined what is right in his own eyes to a blind man with his eyes gouged out. Overnight, a life of coming and going as he pleases turns into a life of bondage and imprisonment. Overnight, the person who has spent his life insulting and humiliating others becomes the object of their humiliation. Overnight, a man with the highest conceivable calling, the divinely commissioned agent of deliverance for Israel, is cast down to the lowest position imaginable, grinding flour for others in prison. Samson's son has set. And it's over. And if we stopped at verse 21, we could just stop there and say, what a tragedy. But God... In his goodness and his amazing mercy and grace gives us verse 22 and the following. But let's stop before we read it. I know you're reading it. Oh, you already know it. You already went ahead. But just feel it here for a second. It's over. His eyes are gouged out. He has no strength. His head got shaved. He's got nothing. Why does God put verse 22 in there? But the hair of his head began to grow again. After it had been shaved. Why does verse 22 appear in the Bible? But God, but grace. Is it because Samson's about to find his inner strength within himself? It was there all the time. He just needed to lose it in order to find it. Well, that sounds good in Disney movies, but no, right? That's not it at all. That's not it. Was it because we're finally going to see how dumb the Philistines are for not continually shaving his head and keeping him weak and soon he's going to overtake them? No, it's not it either. It's neither one of those things. Here's why. Because God, the reason why it says the hair of his head began to grow back is because God overflows with mercy and grace to those who do not deserve it. God's mercy to us overflows. Everything that happens after verse 22 is all an act of mercy from God. We are going to, don't miss this, okay? Because you and I reach verse 21 moments all the time. And praise God, we have verse 22 moments. You and I are going to fail, 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 walking with God. We will not ever do it perfectly. And that's why I started by saying, you don't come to law, God by gospel and walk with God by by. Law, you come to God by gospel and you continually live by the gospel because when we fail, God knows this. That's why verse 22 is there. He overflows with mercy and grace towards us, reminding us that we've already been counted righteous in Christ and therefore we live in that same truth. This is the message of the gospel, that we are, even right now, if you are in a verse 21 moment where you you are at the mill prison, God's overflowing with mercy to you right now and he's just telling you right now there's a verse 22 if you need a verse 22 new testament equivalent go to ephesians 2:4 go to ephesians 2:4 here god overflows with mercy this is the message of verse 22 and following and we need to be reminded of this over and over and over that the gospel is continually giving us mercy after mercy after mercy grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You always, always can keep walking with Christ because you're forgiven. So what we see here in verse 22, when the hair of his head began to grow, is this. Similar to number four, where we see Christians must remember that all our strength comes from Jesus, not ourselves. Our, Our strength comes from Jesus, and it's over and over and over and over and over that it comes from him, and he never runs out of mercy and grace for his people. You're never, ever going to Run out of the grace of God. He's never going to stop being able to give it to you. So when we get to verse 23, this is the famous thing. We all kind of heard it. We've seen it in the kids' cartoons. He's like, you know, he's got the blind eyes, so it's kind of PG-13, but our kids watch it anyway, and we're like, it's the Bible, so it's okay. And he's standing there, and he pushes it, and they all all die, and he dies too. We're like, that's how Samson did it. Don't be, have nightmares. Um, we kind of think that, that verse 23 through 31 is all about how Samson gets his, his, uh, his final say-so against the Philistines. And while that's somewhat true, verse 23 through 31 can mistakenly think that it's mostly about Samson getting his one last shot to kill the Philistines. But I don't think that's it, and I don't think the writer is wanting us to think that it's about Samson versus the Philistines. Instead, there's something bigger. The true contest is not Samson and the Philistines. The true contest is the Lord Yahweh and Dagon. And God's not going to share his glory with anyone. That's what's going on. Verse 23, the words of the Philistine, the Lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God. Dagon is a nothing. He's a cipher that's how I learned that word this week. It's a non-entity. He's a cipher. He's a nothing. He is a nothing that exists of nothing. He's a, he, he doesn't exist, but to them, he's their God. The, the Lord, now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and rejoiced and said, our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand. This is all pagan, awful, terrible, wrong, misplaced, awful worship, and Yahweh, the Lord, will not let His glory go to anybody else. They didn't do anything. God did it. And because of Samson's disobedience. And so therefore, Dagon deserves no glory. God gets all the glory. So what we're seeing here mostly is that God is jealous for his glory continually. Even um, in this situation, They're, they're praising Dagon. And it says, verse 24, and the people saw him. They praised their God. No, 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 you don't do that. Only the Lord Yahweh is worthy of of praise. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand and the ravenger of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they're drinking, they're getting drunk, and they said, call Samson that he might entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. I have no clue how he entertained them. Um, Maybe sang, who knows. Um, But nevertheless, they bring him out to maintain. And as we maintain our walk with God, just Just a side note here. As we maintain our walk with God, I think something we can draw from this is that our aim is the glory of God because he will not share it with anybody else. He doesn't share it with Dagon or the Philistines. He doesn't share it with anybody because no one deserves it besides him. Only he deserves it. And here we have the false God receiving false glory. It's being given to Dagon, this non-entity nobody, this zero nothing person, false whatever. And God will not do that. He will not stand for this. So Samson's up there entertaining whatever he's doing. uh, And they want to have this trophy, this perceived trophy of their perceived conquest uh, at this big party that they're having where you have about 3,000 people. It says, uh, entertain us. And so Samson entertained them and they made him stand by the pillars. Verse 26, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me fill the pillars so I can lean against them. And the house, here it is, was full of men and women all the lords of the Philistines. So the Philistines were numerous, but the, the leaders of the leaders of the leaders, the most important people, were all at this place here. And so if you're going to take out the Philistines, who better to take out than all the leadership? And they're all there. They're on the, in the party, they're on the roof. It says they're on the roof, about 3,000 men and women. They looked on while Simpson, Samson was entertaining. So they have all this stuff going on here. And here, um, They're all in their drunken stupor together, all in one location, uh, having this massive party. And the context of what's about to happen is how ultimately Judges chapter 13, verse five, that he will begin to save the people of Israel from the Philistines. It's finally coming to its final fruition. Samson is going to begin to save the people of Israel right here. If in chapter 14, where Samson brings a little bit of division between them and the Philistines in chapter 14 by killing 30 people, He's certainly going to bring some division between them and the Philistines by killing 3,000. And so here, verse 28, what does Samson do? Does he rely on his own strength like he's been doing the entire time, verse 28? No. Then Samson, here it is. This is so beautiful. I didn't underline it and I'm going to. Called to the Lord. Samson called to the Lord. That is is what we do. He called to the Lord. This prayer, there's only a second recording prayer of Samson, maybe he only prayed twice in his life. Chapter 15 and chapter 16, he calls out to the Lord. And this particular prayer uh, in chapter 16, different than chapter 15, where he had beat everybody with a jawbone, is like, I'm thirsty, God, give me some drink. Totally not humble. Here, this is just the essence of finally being humble. Oh God, Lord, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. Just let me die here right now with the Philistines. Let me avenge. This is a, a much more humble prayer. So number 6 when it comes to walking with God Christians call out to God all the time especially in your most hopeless desperate circumstances Call out to him all the time Don't call out don't just wait to call out to him when things are bad when things are like good but I can handle it it's still a situation and I won't bother God with this one I say call out to God all the time whether you think you can handle it or not call out to him all the time but especially and your hopeless, desperate situations call out to him. You want to maintain, maintain a close walk with God, tell him often and all the time how much you need his help. Tell him you need his presence to be close to you. That's what Samson does. Strengthen me this once that I may be avenged for the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, right hand on the one and left hand on the other, outstretched arms, verse 30. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed, with all of his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and all the people who were in it. And so the dead whom he killed in his death were actually more than everybody he had actually killed in his entire lifetime regarding the Philistines. So the sixth thing is call out to God often and tell him how much you need him. Now, Hebrews, I've said this the last couple weeks, Hebrews 11 verse 32 through 34 in the Hall of Faith says, Samson was a man of faith. (laughs) And as we look at his life, we're like, is he really? I think that this is the moment. sixteen twenty-eight, that is what Hebrews 11 is talking about. This is where he is a man of faith. His last breath of his life. Don't let the last breath of your life be the time where you start living by faith. That would be a tragedy. Don't live a tragic life like Samson. Right now. and every breath you have after this, let it be a life you live for God. This is where we see Samson being a man of faith. This is where God worked mightily through him. When he admitted he was weak in his prayer, he was in his best position for God to work mightily through him. Not for his own glory, but for God's. And when you are the same, whenever you admit you're weak like Samson does here in verse 28, when you admit you're weak, you're in your best position for God to work mightily through you. Not for your glory, but for his. And so when Judge I'm sorry, Hebrews 11 says he was a man of faith. It's true. Now I want to close with this. I want to I want to close with how Samson prefigures and shadows our true savior, Jesus. I want to let you hear and see all the comparisons of this tragic story of Samson and how he saved Israel for a short time, but let you see that your hope is not Samson, your hope is not yourself, your hope is Jesus. The most important moment in Samson's life is his death. One of the most important, no doubt, lives and moments of all of human history is Jesus' death. Samson is in Dagon's temple because of radical disobedience. Jesus went to the cross because of radical obedience, because of our disobedience. Samson's death, Began to bring about deliverance from evil. I'm sorry, from for Israel, Jesus's death delivered uh, his people once for all. Samson only did it temporarily, Jesus did it once for all. Samson was betrayed by someone for silver, Jesus was betrayed by someone for pieces of silver. Samson was tortured and chained by Gentile oppressors, Jesus was tortured and chained by Roman. Gentile oppressors. Samson died with outstretched arms, seemingly defeated his enemies right before death. Jesus died on the cross with outstretched arms, defeating the enemy right before his death. Samson crushed all the heads of his enemies, who were the Philistines. Jesus ultimately crushed the head of his enemy, Satan, by his death on the cross. Samson won victory over the Philistines, humanly speaking, completely alone by himself. He was the only Judge that actually ended up bringing about the the victory for Israel by himself. All the other judges did it with, with people. He did it completely by himself. Jesus also won victory over Satan, sin, and death, humanly speaking, completely alone. He was by himself. Edward Clowney says it this way. Edmund Clowney, sorry. God had shown that he could deliver Israel with an army of willing volunteers. He had also shown that he could save Israel with just as few as 300. But when the Spirit of God came upon Samson, the Lord showed they had no need for 300. He could even deliver by just one. And of course, that prefigures and foreshadows Jesus, whereas Jesus by himself delivers all of us from our sin and, puts, and saves us and puts us on a path towards being able to walk and live for him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your mercy and your grace that you've given to us in Christ. We pray that we would walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling that's, that, we've been, that we've received and the, call and the gospel that's been given to us. We pray that we would all remember that this is not a law-based walking. Sanctification is not about reverting back to law-keeping. It's about trusting in the good news of the gospel and remembering what you've done for us and that we can live a life worthy of the calling that we've been given living by the power of the Spirit, continually trusting in your righteousness applied to us and that we walk with you. Help us, um, like Israel was going to be saved by their judge, help us look to our king, our judge, our only savior, Jesus, and ultimately theirs and all the world's. Help us look to Christ. Help us live at the foot of the cross every day. We don't come to the cross, get saved, and walk out trying to do our best to live for Jesus. We come to the cross and stay at the foot of the cross forever. We need you in our sanctification just as much as in our justification. We praise you, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. We're coming to a time of the Lord's Supper where we celebrate that Jesus gave his life for us on the cross. And so if you're a believer in Christ, this time is for you. Come forward and get the bread and the cup. There's a table in the back Make sure you know that there's wine or juice. Pick the one you want. Uh, whenever you're ready, you may want to sit, think, and pray for a moment. And then whenever you're ready, come forward and get them. And we'll come back and we'll take the Lord's Supper together as a family. This is signifying our unity around, um, around Jesus. So whenever you're ready, you can come forward. If you're not a believer in Christ, I just ask that you observe. You just, uh, just watch and hear the good news of Jesus um, as we take the Lord's Supper together.